Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, let's get straight down to business. If I can ask you to pick up the Bible, and uh, easy to find our first Bible reading. It's the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and it's chapter 3, and it was something like page, you'll find it before me, I'm sure, 5. Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if you were here last Sunday evening, but uh, uh, Alan preached from chapter 2, and uh, that chapter paints an idyllic picture of the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And in that idyllic setting of chapter 2, there has been just one prohibition, just one, you must not. And that comes in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. By the time that we come to the very first verse of chapter 3, our chapter tonight, we discover that there is an enemy in the garden. That enemy is a serpent. And the serpent speaks to the woman. He exaggerates the the prohibition. He minimizes the threat of punishment and he tempts the woman. Go on. Have a bite. And she takes it, this forbidden fruit, and she eats it. And by the way, if you think that the woman comes off rather hard in this chapter, the man is a pretty puny wimp, because while this is happening, he's just been standing there watching and listening. And when the woman offers him some of the forbidden fruit, He doesn't utter a word of protest. He too takes and eats. And before they can wipe the juice from their mouths, they know themselves to be sinners. They have rebelled against the one single command that God had given them that they must not do. They are overcome by feelings of guilt and shame. They try to hide. The story of sinful humanity right down the ages, trying to hide from God. God goes looking for them. Where are you? What have you done? The man protests, that that woman you gave me, it's her fault. The woman pleads, It's not my fault. The serpent made me do it. Is that not another story of human sin and guilt right down the ages? Blame shifting. It's not me. It's him. It's her. It's them. It's you. It's it. Judgment, God's judgment, is pronounced first on the serpent. Come back to that in a moment. Then God's judgment is pronounced on the woman 
and then the man, focusing on their key tasks of childbearing and work, respectively. Their relationship with one another will be disrupted, and they are banished from that wonderful, beautiful, idyllic garden, banished indeed from the presence of God. And the way back is blocked by mighty cherubim, majestic angels, and a flashing, flaming sword. That is the story of our chapter in brief. And if you can get that into your heads, you'll have it in a nutshell. But um, hang on a moment, or as we say in Norfolk, hold you hard. A talking snake, a magic tree, a god who takes an afternoon stroll in the garden, angels standing on sentry duty, a flaming sword. What is this all about? Surely this story is dripping with symbolism. Be sure of that. Exactly what the historical event is behind the story, I struggle to be exact about, to be honest with you. I've um, read everything I can get my hands on about this story. I've looked at it from every possible angle. I still can't say with any confidence, if I had been there with a video camera, exactly what images and what sounds would have been recorded. So if I can't be sure exactly what historical event lies behind this story, how can I have any confidence about how to explain its meaning to you? Well, by cheating, that's how. (laughs) By looking up the answers in the back of the book. And if that is cheating to explain this story by looking it up in the New Testament, then we're in pretty good company. Do you know the story of two disciples? They may have been friends. They may indeed have been husband and wife who walked dejectedly from about seven miles from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And this was a couple of days after... Jesus had been crucified. They knew full well that he had been crucified. They also knew that his tomb was empty. But it didn't occur to him that he might have been raised from the dead. But he has been. And Jesus, as yet unbeknownst to them, catches up with them as they're walking and starts to talk to them. And he says, you really are plots, aren't you? Shouldn't you have known that this man should have suffered and then be raised to glory? How should they have known? Because beginning with Moses and all the prophets... 
he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that conversation. As Jesus went back to Moses, and Genesis, by the way, is referred to as the first book of Moses. Through the books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, and so on. And shown them how he and his death and resurrection were spoken of, described, predicted in those old scriptures. Now, I would like to focus particularly this evening on simply one verse in chapter 3. Having summarized the chapter for you and often referred to as the fall of man, this act of disobedience, a tiny act, if you like, of disobedience for a man, a catastrophe for humankind. But in verse 15 we have a two-fold prediction. Firstly, the prospect of an ongoing conflict, and then the promise of a decisive victory. Will you look with me, please, at verse 15? God is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. That's what I mean by the prospect of an ongoing conflict between the serpent and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. I've said that I believe this chapter is dripping with symbolism. Who within the symbolism then is the serpent? Well, that's actually pretty easy. If we jump straight to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, this, uh, this conflict is described in, in graphic detail, in, in, in vivid technicolor. And we read there in Revelation chapter 12 of that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So the serpent here embodies or symbolizes Satan, the devil. That's one side of the conflict. The other side of the conflict is the woman's, uh, the woman and her offspring. Who is the woman's offspring? Well, the human race. Every one of us born of a woman. But this verse, verse 15, um, shifts from the plural to the singular in a funny kind of a way, as though it's not only the human race, but one member of the human race in particular. I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul had this verse in the back of his mind when he said that when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. So let's focus for a moment on the conflict between the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between Satan and Jesus and all that he came to say and do and achieve. 
Think about some of the attempts of Satan to stop Jesus' mission in its tracks. Was Satan not behind that malicious plot of Herod to kill Jesus off just a short time after he had been born? Certainly the devil was behind the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. But Luke's account of the temptation, at the end of Luke's account, he says, when the devil finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The devil was going to come back and trouble Jesus some more. And then think of all those encounters that Jesus had with various demonized people. One in particular I think of. Jesus speaks to the man, or rather to the demons, um, infesting the man. And he says, what's your name? And they say, Legion, because we are many. Dozens, scores, hundreds of demons infesting that poor man. Was that not an extravagant use of resources? on the devil's part, unless he was hell-bent on stopping Jesus in his tracks. And then there were certain Jews who were determined to kill Jesus. And this prompted our Lord to say the following very severe words. You belong to your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. Then take even one of Jesus' closest friends, one of that intimate circle of three, Peter. Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. But when Jesus then goes on to say that he must go to, to Jerusalem and to suffer and die, Peter says, no, not that way, Lord. And I wonder how much it must have cost our Lord emotionally to look back at the disciples and say in Peter's hearing, get out of my sight, Satan. I think it must have been a real temptation for Jesus not to go that path, not to go to the cross. And then, of course, there's the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And more than one of the Gospels tells us there's a point where Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. And so we reach the time of Jesus' arrest. And the words that he addressed to those who came to, uh, to arrest him. This, he said, is your moment. The time when the power of darkness reigns. And so the serpent then goes on to deliver his final crushing blow. He sees to it that the offspring of the woman is tried on trumped-up charges, that he is condemned 
and that he is executed. A criminal's death and a cursed death. Dead and buried. An ongoing conflict then between the serpent, Satan, and the seed, the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. And the serpent seems to have won. But that's not the only thing in our verse this evening. Back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. The second half of the verse says, He that is the offspring of the woman will crush your head, that's the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. There is here a promise of a decisive victory. Now, the word for strike and, um, excuse me, um, uh, crush and strike, exactly the same, scholars tell us, in the original. Uh, The difference is not in the blow that is imparted, but the part of the body. One blow is to the head, the other is to the heel. In the deep symbolism of this passage, one of the blows crushes the head, that's a fatal injury, and the other crushes the heel, an injury that will turn out not to be a fatal blow. But I want just to pause to notice the amazing irony that is going on here. As the serpent delivers his final blow and Jesus is killed, it was at that precise moment And in that very act, that the offspring of the woman would be making his decisive move against the serpent. As our second reading said, Jesus said, coming up to the cross, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the time that the prince of this world will be driven out. We read again, the very reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the devil's work. And again, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. That instrument of execution and torture is an instrument of triumph and victory. One moment in particular, as Jesus died clinches this. Do you know the story? As he breathes his last, the temple, uh, the, the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separates off the holy of holies, the place where God was most particularly held to live and to dwell, a place that could only be entered by one person, the high priest, and that was once a year. The, te- uh, the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And do you know what was, um, what illustration was on that curtain? Cherubim. The cherubim that had guarded the entrance back into the presence of God were on the curtain that is now ripped in two from top to bottom. Of course, we can never think of the victory of Christ's death on the cross without thinking, too, of his glorious resurrection from the tomb. 
In his death, he bore God's judgment on our behalf. In his resurrection, he broke Satan's strongest weapon, death itself. Yes, he was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And the people of Jerusalem, with the help of wicked men, had him put to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The promise, the prospect not only of an ongoing conflict, but also the promise of a decisive victory. Three points in conclusion. This account puts Satan in his, in it, in his place. He never was the equal and the opposite of God. He only ever was a creature himself, a very clever creature, but a creature nonetheless. He has been fatally wounded, and he knows it. He's still dangerous, as wounded animals often are. And we must put on the full armour of God so that we can take his, uh, our stand against his schemes. But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And finally will, finally will come the day when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. It puts Satan in his place. It puts God, if I can put it like this, it puts God in his place. God sits on a throne, but it's a throne of grace as well as of judgment. Adam has led the human race into rebellion. But in the same breath that God pronounces the sentence, he promises redemption. In fact, he works through the human race to save the human race. He sent his son to share in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And it puts me and you in our place as well, this account. As members of Adam's fallen race, we too were once without hope and without God in the world. But now, as believers, if we are believers in Christ, we are in Christ. That's where we are now. And in Christ, we have gained far more than we ever lost in Adam. And so we will come this evening to share a simple meal together, during which once more human beings will take and eat. But this time, not forbidden fruit, but the tokens of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He died to open up the way back to God, and he lives to welcome us into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Thanks be to God.